Before coming to the table of the Lord this morning, let's open our Bibles to Genesis chapter 22, a passage I really love. Genesis chapter 22, we'll read together the first 14 verses. Let me mention with regard to Ephesians that in our Ephesians series we have come to the fourth chapter. And uh, the fourth chapter is where Paul begins in earnest to apply all of the theology that we've been seeing in those first three chapters. So chapters 4, 5, and 6 is application. Um, I'm going to take a a short break for a few weeks uh, in some measure because of obligations that I have coming up over these next few weeks, but also so that we're all back together as we begin that section of application, chapter 4 of Ephesians. So in August, Lord willing, we will get back to that. This morning, Genesis 22, beginning with verse 1. Let's briefly pray. We humble ourselves before your sovereign throne and ask that we will reverence your name, that you will give to your people who are struggling in life great comfort, that we may understand that Christ alone is the sufficient Savior that he alone could purchase us from our awful sins and pay the price, the debt, the penalty, and that this same Christ is with us still. The covenant God is our God throughout life all the way until he take us home. And there you will say to us, I am your God, you are my people, enter into your rest. May those who are among us today who are strangers to grace, may the work of the Holy Spirit be sovereign within their hearts to bring them out of sin and darkness into the kingdom of your dear Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. Genesis chapter 22, beginning with verse 1. This is the word of God. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here am I. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, And offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, My father? And he said, Here am I, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order And bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, 
Abraham, and he said, here am I. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. The deeds of man could never be sufficient to save us from our sins. There is nothing that you, there is nothing that I could do that would enable us to make ourselves savable, to bring ourselves into a savable state. Only God can provide the sacrifice needed to remove our sins and to pay the penalty. And in this passage we see long, long ago in the life of Abraham and Isaac the promise that God will provide the lamb for the sacrifice. But in this passage, we also see that God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. And the Lord still works this way in the lives of his redeemed people, as he did with Abraham, taking him through circumstances that he could not understand, through what appeared to him to be circuitous routes, asking him to do what seemed to be contrary to God's character. Seemed. Now, the first thing we see as we come to the passage is this. A mysterious call, a mysterious call. In verse 1 we read, After these things God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here am I. Now you will recall that this is not the first time that Abram, Abraham had heard the voice of God. When he was a pagan in Ur of the Chaldees, God spoke to him and called him out of Ur to go into a country whither he did not know. God in sovereign command called him from Ur, and he obeyed the command, and he went out. The covenant God had spoken again to him in chapter 15 of Genesis, fear not, Abraham, I am thy shield, your very great reward. God condescended to make his covenant of grace with Abram. He spoke to him and he promised him on oath that he would have an heir. And he changed his name from Abram, exalted father, to Abraham, father of a great multitude, saying, I will establish my covenant between me and your seed to be a God unto you and to your seed after you. And so undoubtedly, as Abraham hears the voice of God in this passage, he was filled with reverence and awe and fear and trembling, but he must also have asked, what blessing will God bring now? It was a blessing that God called me out of Ur. What a blessing that he promised that I would have an heir. What blessing came from God that he promised that through my seed all the earth would be blessed. What blessing is God bringing now to me, his humble servant? Well, verse 2, 
Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. Blessing? God was thundering the curse of death on his beloved son. No ordinary son, the son of the promise, the comfort of an old man in his old age. The heathen sacrificed their children to their false gods, but this command to sacrifice Isaac comes from the living God himself, from the covenant God. And what of the promise? What of the promise that God had made? Which leads us to the second thing we see, an apparent contradiction, an apparent contradiction, underscoring the word apparent, that his son would die This was a horrible thing. That he would die a violent death, that was sharper still. But a burnt sacrifice meant cutting up the sacrifice, consuming it on the altar. And Abraham was called by God to be his own son's executioner. Can you imagine that? Doesn't Micah later ask, Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul? God condemned child sacrifice. How could this be? God promised Abraham a son. Not just a son. He promised him this son. This son would be his heir. And through him there would be blessing to the entire world. And now he says, take this son and offer him on the mount that I will show you. Abraham once thought, you will remember in the story of Abraham, he once thought that his servant Eliezer would be the one through whom the promise would be fulfilled. No, you will have a son. Well, will it be through Ishmael? No, Sarah, whose womb was as good as dead, will conceive and have a son. And long after Abraham and Sarah were of the age to have children, God kept his word, in Isaac shall your seed be called. All Abraham had to do was to point to that boy. You see that boy? He's the pride of my life. Oh, how I love that boy. And all the more because that boy was promised to me by God himself in covenant. You see that boy, that boy there that's growing up tall and strong, and there he is playing and hunting, and you see him in his, in his youth. You see, that's living proof that God keeps his word. And here is the apparent contradiction. How is God's promise consistent with his present work in Abraham's life? Now I ask you, have you never felt that, believer? How is God's love for me? How is his goodness to me? How is his promise to me consistent with what he's now taking me through in my life? Surely every believer has felt this. Let's heighten the drama. Calvin puts it this way, Isaac was the mirror of eternal life and the pledge of all good things. Isaac was not a son of the common order, but one in whose person the mediator was promised. We could put it this way, if there is no Isaac, there is no Christ. If there is no Christ, there is no salvation. So Calvin goes on, 
In the person of this son, the whole salvation of the world seemed to be extinguished and to perish. Take the son of promise and go sacrifice him. Take the son through whom I promised all the world will be blessed and go and sacrifice him. And so I ask you, have you not sometimes felt that there was a contradiction between your circumstances and God's promises or between your circumstances and his goodness? In such circumstances, what do you do? Abraham tells us, trust God even when the circumstances seem to contradict God's goodness. Leave the event and its outcome in God's omnipotent hands and be faithful. Believe him. Never doubt his word or his character. God's word is still God's word. It is still God's word in hard times. God cannot lie. Again, Calvin puts it beautifully, we act unjustly towards God when we hope for nothing from him but what our senses can perceive. So we pay him the highest honor when in affairs of complexity we nevertheless entirely acquiesce in his providence. Now that's beautifully put, but if you didn't catch it all, what Calvin is saying is we honor God most in the midst of all of this when we say... Lord, I know you are a promise-keeping God and you keep your word and I'm going to trust you despite how things seem to me. I'm not going to base my response on what I can myself see or feel or think or perceive. I'm going to base it on what you have revealed to me in your word. And so we've just sung, do not judge the Lord by feeble sense, by what you perceive You can't see the whole story. You don't know what God is doing. God is the God of providence who has promised to be working for the salvation of his people, leading his church all the way home, working in individual Christians' lives so that God's glory will be exalted and that which is most for your good will be carried out. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. That's taken from Psalm 77, 19. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footsteps were unseen. So that down, down, down in the unfathomable depths, depths that we cannot reach, God is there. His footsteps moving forward for his people, accomplishing things for us that we cannot see and that we cannot perceive. God is at work for his own. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? And so we sang, therefore, judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. And did you note those words, some of the greatest words in hymnody? that we just sang, were written by Cooper. Cooper, who himself went through long, long periods of deep, deep depression all of his life. Whose pastor was John Newton, the writer of Amazing Grace. And probably there was a medical issue in Cooper that perhaps today could well be addressed But this is a man who knew something of the depths of depression and he trusted in the God of providence that he was doing in his life that which was nonetheless for his good. 
Which leads us to the third thing we see in the text, an abiding trust, an abiding trust. We learn a great deal about faith from Abraham. His entire life was a school of faith. We've already mentioned how he obeyed God, came out of Ur, not knowing whither he went. In Genesis 15, uh, verse 6, we read, Abraham believed God, believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. The very first reference to justification by faith in the Bible. God told told him to look into the starry night and to believe that his descendants would be so numerous as the stars and the sky. Abraham shows us that Christ is the object of faith. Paul calls Abraham the father of all who believe. God did not require the sacrifice at once. Abraham had three long days in which to turn these things over in his mind. Imagine the conflict. Obedient to the word, believing God, and yet faith mingled with incredulity. And on the third day, he sees ahead of him the place of sacrifice to which God would bring him, Mount Moriah. And we read in verses 3 and 4, So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from Afar. And Abraham places the wood of the altar fire upon the back of his own son Isaac. He takes the knife in one hand, he takes the clay pot of fire in the other, and together he and his son make their way up the side of Moriah's mount. Did you note verse 5? Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Was that wishful thinking on his part? Was he lying to these people? No. No, he was believing God. He didn't know what God would do, but he was believing God. And then in verse 6, we read, Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife, so they went, both of them, together. And can you read this without thinking? One day, an only son would carry a cross to the place of sacrifice Are there more moving words in all of Scripture than those recorded in verse 7? And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father? And he said, Here am I, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? See again Abraham's faith, verse 8. Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. Literally, verse 8 could be translated, God sees before him the lamb for the sacrifice. You see, God already has provided in his own mind and plan. To God, the sacrifice is already there. And then we read in verse 9, when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. I can hardly imagine this, can you? 
And yet he is obedient to his God. Hebrews 11 tells us that even in the darkest moment, Abraham believed that God would show himself faithful to his word. He did not get it. He didn't understand. He did not know how, but he knows that God is a God of promise, and this promise-keeping God will come through. And so in verse 10, Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. I'd say this is coming down to the wire, wouldn't you? God's timing has never been mine. Has it been yours? In your experience? It never has. I always think I know the right place, the right time, what God ought to do. Well, I don't. God does. The unthinkable is just on the verge of happening. But then we see, fourthly, a surprising provision. A surprising provision. Abraham raised his knife, gleaming in the morning Palestinian sun, and is about to plunge it into his son's breast. And the angel of Jehovah intervened. Verses 11 and 12. The angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, here am I. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And then in verses 13 and 14, Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Isaac then was no longer upon the altar of sacrifice. The Lord had set him free. The Lord supplied the sacrifice. The Lord provided the sacrifice caught in the thicket. Isaac is free because a substitute was provided. Now mountains have often been in Scripture places of revelation. You think of, of course, later of Sinai. You think of the way in which our Lord Jesus, of course, also uh, was uh, preaching on the mount. Well, what does God reveal here on Mount Moriah? There are two fundamental principles that are highlighted for us here that will be unfolded more deeply as Scripture moves along. The first principle is the necessity of sacrifice. That sin is a moral issue, that power alone is inadequate to pardon sin, that sacrifice, suffering, obedience are required, sacrifice, bloody sacrifice is necessary for the restoration of the broken relationship between God and man. Do you see that? And the second principle is when the angel of Jehovah points to the sacrifice in the thicket. This second related principle is taught. What principle? The substitution of one appointed life for another being acceptable to God. Blood, sacrifice, substitution, all found here in Genesis 22. 
In verse 8, Abraham had said that God would provide the lamb for the burnt offering. Now God provides the sacrifice instead of his son. Who suffered and was sacrificed for us? Now the Israelites, when they were reading this, undoubtedly would have thought of the Passover. A lamb without blemish sacrifice, blood was put upon the doorposts and the lintel of the house, and that night the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, but he passed over the houses under the value of the blood. A lamb instead of Israel, blood in the place of Israel. Later, in tabernacle and in the temple, there was the burnt offering God required. Numbers 28 tells us, two male lambs, a year old, without blemish, daily as a regular offering. One lamb you shall offer in the morning, and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. But let's take these principles a little more as we look at this passage. This place, Mount Moriah, is mentioned again in the Bible. Let me show you where it is. It's in 2 Chronicles, turn there, 2 Chronicles chapter 3. Second Chronicles 3, the first verse. Now this is about the building of Solomon's temple. And we read in 2 Chronicles 3, verse 1, Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. Where was Isaac sacrificed or taken to be sacrificed? Mount Moriah. Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to David his father at the place that David had appointed on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. And do you remember that event? When David had sinned in numbering the people, probably a military census, the Lord caused destruction throughout Jerusalem. And David lifted up his eyes and he saw the angel of the Lord stand between heaven and earth with a sword drawn in his hand, stretched out over Jerusalem. What did David do? Upon that place, David built an altar on the threshing floor of Ornan. And there later, the temple was built and sacrifices were offered. This place, Mount Moriah, is later called Mount Zion. The place where the temple was built. Raymond Dillard in his great commentary on Second Chronicles says the site at which Abraham held a knife over his own son was the place where the destroying angel held a sword above Jerusalem. It was there that through the centuries hundreds of thousands of animals would die beneath the blade as sacrifices until ultimately the blade of divine justice would find its mark in God's own son. And near that mount, Mount Moriah, Mount Zion, 
Near that mount was another. It was a hill called Golgotha. And there one day an only son, the beloved of his father, carried the wood for his altar across up that hill. And there God took the knife of vengeance against sin and plunged it into his own son's heart as he bore your iniquities and mine. It pleased the Lord to crush him, putting him to grief. What Abraham was in the end not required to do, God did. Do you doubt that God will provide for your redemption? What work could you perform? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for my soul? But God gave his firstborn, that is to say, his only begotten. God provided the sacrifice. God provides. I've told you this before. I love all of you. I love you deeply. I love you so deeply. But I wouldn't give my son for any of you. God's own son, the second person of the Trinity, of the same essence, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father. He gave him. He gave him. He sacrificed him. He took the knife and plunged it into his own son's heart. That's what the gospel is all about. That's what this table is all about this morning. God provided the sacrifice, and God always provides for his people. So the real question as we read Genesis 22 is not, how could a man love God so much that he would take his own son and trust God like this? That's not the question. The real question is, how could God love us so much? And once Martin Luther read Genesis 22 in his family worship, and Katie... His wife, if you know anything about her, she was quite a lady. Katie blurted out, I don't believe it. A father would not do that to his son. And Luther responded, but Kitty, he did. He did. I want to show you a fifth thing. A fifth truth. I want you to see a dramatic projection a dramatic projection. Now, dramatic projection is a phrase that I picked up from a passing remark on Genesis 22 by Merrill Tinney in his book, The Reality of the Resurrection, page 34, if you want to read it. He said, Abraham on Mount Moriah participated in a dramatic projection of Calvary and the resurrection. Now, that's absolutely the case. If you turn to Hebrews chapter 11... Hebrews 11, verses 17 through 19. And this great roll call of faith, as it is sometimes denominated, Hebrews 11, 17 
through 19. We read about this incident in Genesis 22. The writer of Hebrews says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. We see dramatically projected for us, I think Hebrews 11 would confirm, Calvary and the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Isaac figuratively given back from the dead, our Lord Jesus literally raised by the Father who put him on the cross, raised him from the dead. Was Jesus thinking about Genesis 22 when he said, Abraham saw my day and was glad? I think maybe. Let me draw some threads together as we conclude. I'll mention five things. I really will mention five things. There's only one way. This is first. There's only one way and one person who can redeem us. God himself has presented the sacrifice. God saw. He saw the need and he provided. The sacrifice was divinely provided. You cannot provide your own sacrifice for sin. There's only one way in which you and I can be saved, and that is through the sacrifice that God has given in His own Son. Have you trusted Him? Do you trust Him for your salvation and redemption? Secondly, God is with His suffering people. He is with us in the dark. He is working redemptively in our pain. And Paul is thinking of this passage, we know that in Romans 8.32, because the Greek translation of the Genesis 22, the Septuagint, which would have been the the typical Bible used in Paul's day by the apostles, the very language of Genesis 22 is reflected in Romans 8.22. Paul is thinking of that in Romans 8.32 when he says, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Not all things we might like, but all things that we need to bring glory to God. The way may be dark. There may be apparent contradictions with which to wrestle. But the cross is the great paradigm in our suffering showing that the Lord has good in it for his own. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter and he will make it plain. Third thing, come what may, come what may, God has proven his love for you in the cross, believer, Never doubt it. You will suffer, but believer, there is one grief that you will never know, and that is the grief of paying for your own sins in hell for eternity. Romans 5.8, God demonstrated his own love for us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Fourthly, 
God always keeps his word. Whether your senses perceive it or not, God always keeps his word. Proverbs 35, 30 verse 5. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Even in darkness, Abraham was sure that God would keep his word. And we, his covenant people, may be sure of that today. And then fifthly, finally, as dramatically projected in this passage, the suffering Savior rose from the dead to suffer no more. And in the midst of your suffering, you and I are called to look ahead to his coming, to the one who rose from the dead, who is coming, and who has promised to raise the dead. In the midst of your suffering, do not forget, Jesus lives and so shall I. And so it's right that we draw a line from Genesis 22 to 1 Corinthians 15 in which by divine inspiration the Apostle Paul says I tell you this brothers flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable behold I tell you a mystery We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. God's people said, Amen. Amen.